Men, I have something to say to you. Please stand. I want to tell you that you are beautiful and brilliant and beloved. No matter what you do, what you've done, what you've left undone, or how terrible of a man you've been, your beauty, your brilliance, and your belovedness, these things have been true, are true, and will be true. I want to tell you that the world is not only against you, it is against every good that can come from you. So equip yourself with the power greater than yourself and find the grace of God that has a track record of defeating the strongest enemies. I want to tell you that the greatest thing you can be is a gift to somebody else. So wrap yourself up in the hope that you can be that generous, that you can turn your desires toward another and make sure somebody else has the things you have, gets the things you get, and will have a fraction of the life you've had. I want to encourage you to stay with the best ways you've been taught to love. We don't usually learn to love, so when we find little ways, we need to practice them so we don't forget them. Hold them while we learn to love better and appreciate our growth in the process. I want to encourage you to keep some goal in your face, to be careful who you share it with, and to be relentless in pursuing it, because even if you fail, you will succeed at a behavior that is more Christian than you know, more formative than you can imagine, and more enriching than success. I want to encourage you to enjoy yourself at least once a day. Which means you'll need to find joy in your work, in your home, in your leisure, in your nothingness. Slowly inspect these spheres of life so that you always, every day, find joy. It's there, whether it seems hidden, when it seems altogether gone. Joy is underneath the parts of your day and it's waiting for your discovery. I want to remind you that you will be greeted by hell every week. That you will be visited by enemies every day. That you will be undone by the hour. That you will be deconstructed at personal and systemic levels. So if you're not serious about finding your sustenance outside of society, you will find death without life. If you are not serious about finding strength in the source who is God, you will find brokenness without hope. If you are not serious about placing mystery in front of you, you will never be covered from back to front with the power that is undefeated. I want to challenge you to love every woman with such skill that she will respect you with such honor that she will speak well of you, with such care that she will trust you, and with such admiration that she will feel safe with you. 
I want to challenge you to sit alone with yourself for 10 minutes a day, sitting in silence, sitting and listening to the voice of God as it comes to you, even if it sounds scary or strange or welcoming. I want to challenge you to find the people in the world who make you feel like yourself and spend time with them. They may be the truest, rarest gifts from God you have. Finally, I want to challenge you to be someone's father this year, biological or not. Be a man who some child can look up to. Call when she needs you. Question when he wonders something. Claim when no one else steps up for them. Be the man who stands in the gap for a single mother or who stands alongside another father. Be the support the presence, the strength, the weakness, the shoulder, the legs, the backbone. Live all year and hear this greeting in some form regularly. Happy Father's Day and may your children love you. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to warm up your vocal cords now because you have a lot of reading to do. So rest your throat, exercise, jiggle your throat, clear your throat, church. And we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I'm going to start a sermon that I will actually end two weeks from today. Over the next several weeks, uh, the next couple of months, we will be gifted with Uh, voices mostly from our congregation, from our church over the next two and a half months of pastor's sabbatical. I will have um, a part in that, but several other people will, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, And so today uh, we'll start in Luke 24, and I would like you together to use uh, your preaching voice to read a rather lengthy text from Luke 24 verses 13 to 35. Uh, This is the New Living Translation. And so, uh, would you please read? If you read fast, you'll need to slow down. If you read slow, uh, you'll need to speed up just a bit. Uh, And read together. I'll have a whole lot to say, uh, so I'll listen to you and to us as we gather. Come on. The same day. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. 
he appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they recognized him as he was breaking the bread. This is the word of God for us this morning. Thank you for reading. The cultural center um, in downtown Chicago was once the headquarters for the Chicago Public Library. In its earlier uh, life, the building was uh, sort of doubled as uh, the, um, the library and a kind of gathering place for veterans of the Civil War. Um, so if you look in the building, there are um, monuments, inscriptions in the walls, uh, and the architecture really pays tribute to both books on the one hand and veterans on the other. And on the first floor these days, uh, of course, the Cultural Affairs Department of the city uses the building now, and on the first floor is a series of art galleries. In one uh, exhibit, <clears throat> two, art, two artists, Miller and Shella Barger, use gunpowder and black oil sunflower seeds to create images of bodies and hands. They have in the gallery a couple dozen outlines of figures which they say both physically are both physically present and absent. So get in your mind these outlines, kind of like kindergarten where you take your hand, put it on paper, and trace it. That's what you would see, outlines of hands or outlines of persons in weird configurations there on the first floor in the gallery. And, and they have created these outlines that make the hands of people and the bodies of people both hidden and transparent at the same time. And I think back to that, that uh, exhibit, uh, and I saw it this week, actually, and it became an image for me of what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about walking with God, and if I would put my sermon in one sentence, it would be that walking with God increases transparency in us. Walking with God increases transparency in us. By transparency, I'm getting at what Miller and Shellabarger may be getting at with their gunpowder and their sunflower outlines. Something that is both physically present and absent. Something that is both created and, and, and hidden, uh, transparent and hidden at the same time. Transparency is being see. Transparency is being seen through. Transparency is being seen through without judgment. 
And I think that walking with God increases our transparency, our being seen, our being seen through, and our being seen through without judgment. My simple proposition today is that if we are walking with God, if we are following Jesus, if we are disciples of Christ, if we're ambassadors of the kingdom, if we're Christians, if we are being seen, we are being seen through, and we are being seen through without judgment. The two sojourners here in Luke's passage are traveling after Pentecost. Remember that this Pentecost was marked by Jesus' death. This was the weekend he was crucified. Remember also that this was a time when because of his death, most of his disciples had dispersed. They had abandoned him, most of them. They, They left mostly fearful and afraid because of what happened to him, perhaps happening to them. He got executed, so they fled in fear. Some huddled together, some stayed together for days, while others finished their sober acknowledgement of the deadly weekend, not knowing it was Easter. They hadn't had email blasts. They hadn't had um, newsletters. So they spread the word through conversations. These things that involved people talking face to face, saying words audibly in ears. I think about my niece when I say that definition. Sometimes I remind her what a conversation is. And in the early church, they had conversations. They spread messages, word of mouth. And this was happening as these two sojourners, these two travelers, went by foot from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. They walked around and told each other details after a days-long journey, five miles here, seven miles there. They are on the way to Emmaus, probably where they live. And, 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 and we know one of them by name. One of them is called Cleophas. We read his name, Cleophas. We don't know who the second person is. Cyril, who is a pastor uh, from the 4th century, the late 4th century, said that these two, uh, Cleophas and this other person, came from the 70 in Luke chapter 10. They're part of that uh, number of disciples that Jesus sent out. Other theologians say uh, that this is Cleophas with his wife, with his spouse. Others say that this is Cleophas with his son. And, and I wonder about that. We do not know. We can, we can guess and we can turn it over and we can guess what it would be like to have this conversation with, with a co-laborer who you're not related to. What it would be like to talk about these things that we hear in this text with a spouse. What it would be like to talk about these things with a child, with a relative. We don't know who the other person was, but there are some things that we do know. We do know that this pair is initially emotional, and and, and we turn to see how walking with God is emotional. This pair is emotional when Jesus shows up. Their first response is not even a verbal response. 
The Bible says that they stood still with downcast faces. So here you are walking along, a stranger comes up, and you begin to talk with him about these things. And they stop walking, cast their faces down, and then they speak. Now, now let me frame what I'm going to say <clears throat> because I don't want you to mishear me. I'm, I'm going to say, and I said this before, that feelings matter. They aren't the only thing that matters. We don't always build worlds around them, but, but we attend to them appropriately. My, my, uh, my last my last clinical supervisor said, uh, I think quoting John Shea, that feelings are the word of God to us. And we can get into that a little later uh, because that would take us in a, in a, in a, in a very particular direction. But, but we often dispense with feelings. And I think Luke here is giving us over to paying attention just by remarking in verse 17 that they stood still and that they looked sad. The writer gives us the content of their conversation, and he gives us the context of their conversation. We have their words, and we have their nonverbals. I was counseling with a couple years ago who I used to, I used to work with the guy, and he was engaged, and uh, we would meet at Salonica, in my neighborhood, he and his fiance and I. And this brother has three children at the time. They were getting ready to get married. And a part of our work together was to talk about her impressions of him as a father because she was stepping into the family, right? And becoming a stepmother, becoming a mother, stepping into this family. And she would remark and he would agree that as a father, he was teaching his twin boys um, not to feel. And he would do it in a particular way. And so he and I, of course, we look alike. We have the same kind of skin tone. And we would talk about the complexities of being black men and raising black men, which he was doing at the time and I was not. And my encouragement to him was to teach these boys as much as he could that it was okay for them to feel. So part of his work was, one, trying to figure out whether that was true and also trying to find a way for him to negotiate a whole new parenting style for these twin boys who had feelings and who had to learn what to do with them. And, and, and this morning I'm reminded of him and her and them because we raise each other and many of us are raised to dispense with those things called feelings. We talk badly about them as if they are unkind friends and, and Luke seems to bring feelings back. He seems to frame this conversation that is happening between these two people and this stranger who is Jesus. 
My spiritual director tells me uh, from time to time that if I'm not paying attention to my feelings, one, I'm not paying attention to myself, or two, my feelings will get my attention. Luke tells us that these two people had hoped. They're talking to Jesus about um, the Messiah. They're talking to Jesus about what they wanted from the Messiah. And this language in the text in verse 21 around having hoped is language of anticipation. They anticipated something from the Messiah. They trusted uh, something of the Messiah. They expected something of this messianic Savior. They are saying in this text that they projected a different future than the one they were living in. They had projected a different life than the one they were experiencing at the moment. In a way, as they say these things to Jesus, they are praying. They are talking to God about their life. They're praying. They're praying their experience, if I can put it in that way. So, so, so think about this text this morning, at least the first part of it, as, as a way of God increasing our transparency around how we feel about our experience. We trusted that God would do this, is what they're saying. We expected, we desired, we wanted this thing and we didn't get it. Friends, they are disappointed in God. Have you ever heard anyone say, y'all are really good, so these people who grew up kind of like me. Have you ever heard people say, I'm disappointed in you? Daniel, Daniel. This is what they're saying to Jesus about Jesus. Do you ever talk to God like that? I'm disappointed in you. Luke is inviting us to a kind of walk with God where we can be that transparent to say and to name as prayer our disappointments with God. That's what they're saying to Jesus about him. And and the truth is, it makes you sad when Jesus doesn't live up to who you thought he was. You thought he was the mighty God and he turned out to be weak enough to die. You thought he was all-knowing, and instead, he walks and asks you questions. You thought he would live forever, and he was executed. We could act like it doesn't hurt, or we can hold the pain as we walk with Jesus. Even though those things aren't always to be true about him when they are true when you are experiencing that death from friday to sunday it's as real as you're sitting in this building this morning 
and we come face to face with a truth uh, that doesn't uh, really get talked a whole lot about, and that is we don't really know God's future for us. We don't know experientially what God has in store for us. Think about heaven, for example, that long away future. We don't know it. You haven't been there and come back. We've never physically been in glory, like Colossians 3 says, that we've been sitting with over these last weeks. We don't really physically know what it means to be with God in Christ at the right hand of God. It's, 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 It's present and it's absent. It's like Miller and Schellerbarger's outline where there's a hand there, but you don't see veins, you don't see hair, you don't see knuckle bones, you don't see skin. It's there and it's not. We live toward that future. We live and walk toward and anticipate and expect that future like every other future God has in our tomorrows. We know that walking with God is uh, emotional. Luke is pulling that in front of us. But there's a second piece about this walk with God as we see here in Luke chapter 24, and that is that it is full of what I'll call theological ruptures. Transparency means rupture. It means changing faith. In this chapter, these two people's faith is changing. As they they talk about their hopes and their dreams and their perceived broken promises between them and their dead Messiah, they have not lost faith, but it has changed. I think this is a critical step for a person of faith. A part of our faith journey is in recognizing and remembering the story of our faith. We recall what has been handed on to us. We memorize the scriptures. We quote the scriptures. We know uh, as head knowledge the text of scripture. Scripture is something uh, to be known and understood. God is a person to be known and understood. We analyze scripture. We analyze God and and we treat God as if these two, God and scripture, are objects. That is a part of the faith journey. In that journey, we see Jesus' life. We note how he lived. We note how he served, how he died. We can talk to you about his resurrection. That's a part of the faith journey. Faith development gets deeper because Jesus tells us to go beyond knowing about his death, to go beyond accepting that he died. Jesus tells us to ourselves die. He says, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, don't just watch Jesus die on his cross. Don't just progress through Lent while noting his sufferings, but take up your cross and march to your own death. That 
is a theological rupture. That is an upset to how we understand God. And it's as much a part of faith as anything. That is a cracking in how you understand God. It's an upsetting and eventually a deepening and a forming. I don't think we can have life without such death, without our own dying. Walking with God means that this happens, that this is a result of being transparent. Our faith changing, our view changing, our taking things in differently. Because we change when other people die, for sure. And some of you are experiencing the deaths of people that you love. And we are different because the people we love die, but we really get different when we accept our own death. And the call of the Christian is to die, die, die. Like a child who has... You read the same story over and over. You know the child knows the story as it's written. And you marvel at the child's creativity, not when they repeat the story as it's written, but the story as they put themselves in it and change it and revise it and rewrite it and experience it themselves. These two are walking with God, and their walk with God is emotional. Their walk with God is about their changing faith, this theological rupture for my language this morning. But finally, their walking with God is about um, explaining their faith, explaining their experience of faith. Um, What's happening here is that these two people are becoming transparent, about their story. They're walking with Jesus and they're talking about their story in the context of their faith story. And they're getting a new enthusiasm for Jesus. The Bible says that as they talk to Jesus, um, their hearts are burning. That language has to do with them speaking about Jesus and listening to Jesus and a love growing and expanding in them. Their words are words of love deepening. Their words are words of um, adoration increasing. And for them, um, they don't just talk about the facts of their faith. They do that. But as they talk, excuse me, as they talk with Jesus, their faith increases because their love increases. Here they tell Jesus the stories of their faith. In other words, they're evangelizing to Jesus about Jesus, which I think is pretty interesting, right? They're talking to Jesus about him. They're pairing their belief with their experience. And this is evangelism. Evangelism is essentially taking what you know about God, looking at your experience of what you know about God, and telling somebody else. 
And so they're walking with Jesus. And next week, <clears throat> I mean two weeks from now, we'll look at this, this text uh, with Jesus' questions in mind. And, and we'll, we'll wonder through why he asked the questions that he asked. But, but these two people show us that evangelism isn't just head knowledge. It's living knowledge and sharing life. Those two verbs of living and sharing. And as this experience continues between them and Jesus, what they know about God grows. And the result is these two becoming even bolder truth tellers. They were already heralds. They were already evangelists. But they witness to Jesus, this other traveler, and their hearts change as they witness. I noticed this happening in the life of our church two weeks ago, and I thought about these folks as I was preparing. And uh, usually when I'm preparing a message, I'll think about people in our church. And I said uh, in my prayer, I said, well, uh, I'll know this is spirit-given if these two people show up for church. And they didn't show up for church, so I don't know what to do with that. Um, well, I guess I do know what to do with it. Um, I'm going to pick on somebody else. I'm going to pick on somebody else. No. Um, I saw this happening. I, I, I think part of what we do in, in, the, uh, in the sermon is talk about our stories, right, and tell our stories and, and to share examples, and sometimes that comes in different forms. And uh, the other week, I'm just trying to see who might have been around. I don't see any of the usual suspects here. The other week, I got an email from one of our, one of our uh, well, she's not a leader now. She's a member in our church. She used to be a leader from Laura. And Laura sent an email about Alderman Cologne and the, you've heard this if you've been to church the last few weeks, the Viaducts over on Diversity, um, Diversity at Kedzie, um, Belmont, Belmont and Kedzie, um, and the city reconfiguring um, those structures, right, um, so that... Um, the homeless folks who live under the structure are being displaced. You remember this announcement? Some of you? Are you awake with me? All right, you're here with me. Um, And um, the call went out to the church. We told the church about it and invited you uh, a a couple Mondays ago tomorrow to show up. And two of our leaders uh, actually showed up, and I was going to pick on them. Um, Can I pick on anybody else? Because you participated in something since then around this? Raise your hand. Volunteer. God will use you to this morning. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. God will use you. God will use you. Raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Are y'all telling me the truth? Okay. All right. Well, these two leaders went ahead, and they... um, these two sisters in our church went together. They didn't go together. They met each other there. Um, and I wanted to ask them, and I will still do this because I think the power of their whatever experience they shared is going to stand on its own. I'm not going to riff on it. But I wanted to ask them to talk to us about their going together on their walk to Emmaus, if you will on a Monday afternoon and just to tell us what they saw happening and where they saw God at work. 
And so I'm going to do that still. And if you see Lucy or Kimmy, you warn them if you want to. Uh, Because for me, their experience really captured a real close example of what this text is talking about. So in the absence of them sharing their um, testimony from two weeks ago, let me close by opening to you and asking if you can recall in mind your recent memory in your own life where this passage has happened, where you've walked with somebody else and noticed God in the process. Think about it. And this is where I'd open it up. Carlton, come on up. and we'll... Anybody recall walking with God, walking with another person and noticed God's nearness in that? Offer a word of phrase to us. Uh, comment about it. Yeah, Karen. You got to use your preaching voice though, Karen. Yeah. yeah. Did you hear, Karen? When, when her mom was dying, she felt the presence of God. Thanks, Karen. Others. Yeah, Wendy. Did you hear, Wendy? When her daughter returned home after being absent 11 years. When have you noticed God's presence walking with you? Anybody else? So this friend who had pent up grief from her father's death in January is now opening up and getting a new job started. Just being, he used the word amazing. Yeah, Sherry. Your sisters uh, yeah, offered her family a song in sharing hard news. Sherry's noticing the company of God there. Yeah. 
anybody else. The decision to look for your biological mother, going through that decision, going through the moment, tears that wouldn't only be shared, shed, being shed, and noticing God's presence. Mm. I know there was another hand I think I saw. Yeah. way of picturing the story of this text um, in all of these examples, but as Keisha sort of ends this time for us, two people who for all apparent purposes didn't belong together, working on something and surprising things happening out of it, long-standing now relationship being commented upon, testified about as God's work. This morning, in a few minutes, um, we'll have communion, but, but, but I want to ask you if what you hear from our church, our body, is true that God uses sin to show us our relationship with an unconditionally loving God or God uses 
contact with a relative who's been gone a long time, or God uses death to bring and to show us his presence, or God gives us music in the midst of pain. These kinds of glimpses of God's presence. If, if this is true, what does it mean for you? How do you have to pray to acknowledge this truth? Or how might you live this week if God comes in these ways?